Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm so pleased to welcome our guest tonight, actor Jimmy Hunt, who starred in one of the memorable science fiction films of all time, The Original Invaders from Mars from 1953, one of over 40 films from this veteran actor. Welcome, Jimmy. Hello, how are you, Steve? I'm great, I'm great. I, I have to tell you that um, you are science fiction royalty for me because I think before, shortly after I learned to walk, <laughs> I, I was just, my nose was in the TV. And <clears throat> I think Invaders from Mars came on one night and scared the living daylights out of me. And uh, I think uh, I, I, I had to fight back to, to get my courage to see it again. And I've grown to love the film over the year. We'll get into that in a minute, but I wanna talk a little bit about you. I have some questions I wanna ask you uh, that pertain to classic movies. Cause I, when I, when I talked, this is a, this is a show where we just love movies. I mean, movies are so much a part of our culture, our emotion, our history, our, our touchstones. And I wanted to just ask you, did you grow up in a family where you went to the movies a lot? Was your family a movie going family? No, we were not. Uh, we grew, I grew up in West Los Angeles, uh, lived about, I don't know, maybe six blocks from MGM Studios. Oh, it's funny you should mention that because I'm, I'm about 10 blocks from MGM Studios right now. What street did you live on? Uh, okay. Um, I grew up on Dunn Drive, which is, let's see, maybe Clarington sure. and Hughes. Sure, of course, of course. Right there. We were, we were, not, in, we were not in Culver City. We were about a block and a half north. So we were kind of in between Cheviot Hills and, and, uh, and Culver City. Sure. No, that's West LA. I know know it well. I I I remember vividly in I think it was about 1962 or 1963, my mother and I walked to the Culver Theater from uh, West LA, and we literally walked over the Santa Monica Freeway. It was under construction at the time. So I remember my mother, who was not the most athletic person in the world, she actually climbed a dirt mound with me to get to the Culver Theater there on Culver, on, actually on Washington Boulevard. You probably know it well. Oh yeah, oh, completely, yes. Now it's called the Kirk Douglas Theater. I think they run a lot of legitimate theater there. So you weren't a movie going family. Were, were your parents in, involved in uh, show business at all? None, not what, none whatsoever. My dad was a tool and die maker. And uh, so we came, I came from a, I guess a, a middle-class family. I mean, strictly middle-class and uh, didn't have uh, any inklings. My, I have a sister uh, who was a really a cutie, but uh, uh, I was lucky enough to get into the movies, not her. <laughs> so what, do you, what was the spark, would you say? Now, if you're not going to the movies and then suddenly you're uh, involved in the movies, what was the spark that got you there? They were looking for, this was 1946, uh, and they were looking for someone to play the part of Van Johnson as a young boy. And uh, they looked through Hollywood and they just didn't find what they were looking for. And so I went to a school called La Bayona Grammar School, right off of Washington Boulevard, I believe. Anyway, uh, they came, a talent scout came and picked a couple of us out of, of school. We went and had a uh, <clears throat> kind of an interview and uh, a screen test, I guess. I don't really remember too much. And next thing I know was the fact that the, this talent scout came and told my mother that he wanted me to report to uh, MGM, you know, to because uh, I was going to be in this movie. And now so what, it, what was the name of that movie? The name of the movie was High Barbary. And it was with Van Johnson 
and June Allison. And well, there uh, it is. Van Johnson is a Navy pilot in World War II who has been shot down in the Pacific on a bombing mission. He and a wounded comrade are the only survivors of the mission are in a lost at sea. So obviously this movie goes into flashback to see you as a right. boy. Right. And there it was. My, I played the younger boy and then the teenager was played by um, why not? Claude Jarman Jr. Oh, of course, from The Yearling. Yes, from The Yearling, yes. Oh, wow, okay, okay. So so you, um, well, you certainly didn't have to make a long commute. The studio was, like you say, what, uh, four blocks away? Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't a tough drive, I tell you. And, you know, it was kind of ironic because of the fact that, like I said, we didn't really go to the movies a lot. It was, you know, it was, Right after World War II, you know, everybody was just coming back from, you know, being overseas and stuff like that. And, and uh, so you were just trying to get your life in order. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, it was, and then there I am, I'm, I'm making a movie. And, and it was a great experience because, uh, I mean, I was thrilled just to see how they made movies. I thought it was really cool. You know, the, everything behind the camera I thought was neat. I mean, I didn't know who the, I didn't know who the the movie stars were. I mean, my parents what, had what to keep are, what are you, the MGM lot. This is 1946, so this is this is considered the epicenter of Hollywood movie making. MGM was was the in those days was the the high threshold of elegance and uh, success. MGM rhymed with classics. Uh, did you feel, uh, I mean, uh, what what are your, you're, you're seven years old. I mean, uh, you must have some memories of those first trips to the lot. Uh, all I, I can remember, you know, going to the Little Red Schoolhouse. And they had a regular school with, you know, a, a white fence around it. And, and, uh, and some of my classmates were, uh, see, Roddy McDowell and... Uh, uh, J uh, Jane Powell and uh, oh yeah by the way it was um, why can't I <laughs> this is terrible <laughs> she was married to Richard Burton and uh, Elizabeth Taylor Elizabeth Taylor yes I'm so sorry I didn't remember that but That's yes fine. there it was I mean I mean I got to sit on her lap <laughs> That's that's pretty funny. Um, uh, yeah, and, that was, and that was uh, that was before even before Burton got there. Right, so, right. Well, she was yeah. fairly young too. I mean, uh, she, she was probably about sixteen at the 16, time. So she had just made National Velvet. So she was up and coming at the. Oh, yeah, she was big time. Yeah. And you actually had a teacher teaching you, just like a regular school classroom, and so exactly. at seven years. Seven years old, uh, I you were second grade, second grade, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, well, I, you know, I looked at, um, oh, I, I actually have to ask you another question because this goes back to classic movies. I like to ask this question everybody has a favorite, you know, a movie they will never see a movie enough of, not only your own movies, but just movies in general. If you were cast adrift on a deserted island and you could only bring one movie with you to watch when you wanted to watch a movie. Do you have a favorite of any type of movie that you would love to keep watching over the years? Um, I think it was the movie that brought me back to movies because there for a while, I, you know, I was, I, I retired when I was 14. So, uh, and then I really didn't have much to do with the movies except, you know, maybe, you know, as a, as a teenager, you'd go to the drive-in and do those kind of things. But uh, uh, I, I think the movie that kind of got me back into the swing of the things was uh, Star Wars. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I got excited about movies again. Um, there were some really good movies that I liked a lot and I had... My favorite actor of all time is Joel McRae. 
one and, wonderful Western actor that I keep bumping into on the on the Turner Classic Movie Channel, and he keeps getting better and better. I recently watched Ride the High Country, which was one of his last films with Randolph yeah. Scott. Just a brilliant film. It was a great film, and and he was such a nice man. I mean, he we we spent about two months up in Colorado on uh, location filming uh, a movie called Lone Hand. And that's, that I would say was my favorite movie that I made. Um, I got to narrate the movie. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, and, we, and he treated me just like a, his son. He was so good and so kind. And after the movie was over, he invited me out to his ranch, which uh, was in the Moore Park, Simi Valley, Thousand Oaks area. Sure. It still exists. I've been there a couple times now in my later years uh, with his grandson, Wyatt uh, McRae. And, uh, and he invited me out there. And so I got to meet his wife and his boys and we had a great time. And so, yeah, no, he was like a father figure. And that was directed by George Sherman uh, and featured right. two, two people from the Perry Mason television series, Barbara Hale and Charles Drake. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, and James Arness is in it as well. What a cast. Uh, I had I had a um, I had the privilege, I guess, <laughs> of being able to say that I was responsible for the uh, the death of uh, Jim Arness when he died in Lone Hand. He was, he, was he was chasing me up this, up this cliff over this river. And as he's trying to reach out to grab me, I pull my leg away and he slips and falls to his death. You killed Marshall Dillon? I killed Marshall Dillon. <laughs> well, that, that got you back in. So you retired and then you got back into things. Uh, what... Um... You know, I was looking at a lot of your credits. Uh, one of the fun ones I noticed, because you, you did all types of movies, was you were one of the kids in Cheaper by the Dozen uh, for 20th Century Fox. With That must have been a hoot and a holler. That was a fun movie to make because most movies, uh, you were probably, you know, maybe one, maybe two children on the set. But this way, you know, there was 10 of us, you know, you know there was actually 12 children, but the, the little ones were really small. But, uh, oh yeah, so they, I mean, we had people to play with between the scenes and they took about 10 to 12 weeks to make that movie, which was in, in those days was a pretty long time. And uh, it was, like I said, we had a great time. I mean, just a, a really good time. And it was a good fun movie to make. And we got to meet the people the Galbraith family, we got to meet the, uh, the, the children that we played the part of. Well, the film starred one of my favorite actors who was always playing these curmudgeons, you know, uh, Clifton oh. Webb uh, just always was very tough and stiff. Uh, and I'm sure he must have been a character to work with. Was was he tough and stiff in real life, or was he a little bit more uh, friendly? He, you know, he was friendly, but Clifton Webb didn't like children too much. <laughs> <laughs> and so here he is, stuck with ten kids or twelve kids, right? And uh, I mean, you know, I always looked at it and I said, "How did they ever?" You know, he got cast in a lot of those movies, like. The Scoutmaster and and a few others like that and and so yeah he was always playing with children but he, it was not his favorite thing <laughs> and then when we had twelve of us I mean that we we really made it tough on him sure sure it's funny because I think um, I really started to watch classic movies when NBC put Saturday Night at the Movies on on prime time as a as a weekly movie show. And I think that first season in 62, uh, they had only 20th Century Fox titles. So they had the whole library of Fox. So that's where I saw uh, Cheaper by the Dozen for the first time. And 
Clifton Webb, of course, was under contract to Fox for many years. Um, I, I think I think one of the first movies I ever saw him in was um, uh, Laura, which was made during oh, yeah. the war. Yeah. He plays opposite uh, Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews. Well, you know, um, in, now you said you retired after at four. Did you say at fourteen? Fourteen, yes. So what I, I, what what made you retire? Um, I think the fact that um, after making forty movies uh, in a, in a short period of time, seven years, uh, I wanted to be a kid, and I wanted to play sports. And I couldn't play sports and do movies because it'd be I'd be at practice and my mom would come and say, we've got to go on an interview. And right. I hate I hated interviews. Oh, I hated interviews. So, you know, I'd go and there I'd come. I'd come with my Levi's and my tennis shoes and and uh, my mom would always have a clean shirt for me. And and we'd come in, you know, and <laughs> I was hoping I didn't get the part. But matter of fact, as I came in, everybody else was there with their little portfolios and all of their pictures. And I never did any of that. I didn't bring those. I just came as I was. And, and uh, that was what they were looking for most of the time. I was, the, the two things that I think were good for me at the time was the fact that I had freckles and that I had curly hair. And I, I disliked both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and as soon as I retired, the first thing I did, I went out and I got a crew cut. I got my hair cut right down as short as you can get it, you know. So, <laughs> and I left it that way, you know, until I actually, until I got married. But uh, yeah, no, it was, um, that was one of the reasons that I, I, I wanted to get out. And, and the, so I played sports in high school and did all the things that my, my life right after my retirement was like, I would say it was, it was parallel to happy days. I mean, I was, I was the Richie, Richie Cunningham of my day. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I had a, you know, I had a, 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 a hot rod and I had played sports and, you know, and the, the only difference is the fact that the, uh, the Fonzies of my day were not as nice as, as Fonz in the, in the deal. I mean, those guys, <laughs> Those guys beat you up. <laughs> so you you actually, I mean, where do you classify invaders from Mars? Is that pre-retirement or post-retirement? Uh, that's pre-retirement. Okay, so we, we obviously haven't gotten there yet because you, you're still, okay, so let, let's go back a little ways because I think everybody has uh, an emotional reaction who saw the original movie. Uh, I think what what's, what sets Invaders from Mars apart from so many films of that period was the style that it was filmed in. Um, I think that the director uh, who was who came from production design, William Cameron Menzies. Maybe may have been one of the more interesting filmmakers of his period, in that he was such a visualist. And um, what are your well? First of all, let's back up a little bit. Uh, what do you remember about the audition process? Was this just another thing where you were called in and they liked your freckles and your curly hair and you got the part, or was it a little bit more than that? Um, that was part of it, and then they, you know, I got to read the script. They wanted to know if I would do something like that because it was, it was a completely a, a different genre from the stuff that I had done. You know, the kind of the, how would I want to say that, romantic comedy type stuff that I'd been in most of the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just um, when I when I saw the the, the script and and I said that it would be kind of fun to do. And so, yeah, we, I, was, I was fortunate enough to get the part. Were, and, you, were you into science fiction at all? I mean, you weren't going to the movies much. Uh, were you, did you oh, have, have a sense of that genre at all? Oh, I, I was into, I was into rocket ships and all that kind of stuff. Oh. And, and I used to draw um, 
draw rocket ships. And I, I, I have to say, I, I think I did a really pretty good job of, of, of some of my stuff was pretty good. Uh, but, you know, and I was, but I, like I said, I was a typical teenager, you know, and then, and, and, and uh, well, actually that, I guess I was 12, no, maybe 13 years old when we made that movie. And right, so, so you were shooting in like 52 for a yeah, 1953 yeah. release. Right. Um, well, you know, it's, I found this, well, the story for me personally plays like an extended nightmare, uh, starting with the fact that you, you see this image in the sand pit. Uh, because, um, it's such a, I mean, there's so many scenes I could talk about from a style point of view. Were you aware of the fact when you were working the movie, how much effort was being put into how they stylized those scenes and created them? Was it, was it a little bit of a different experience for you? It was, it really was, you know, it was, I, I you know, it's like when I first saw the sets and we did it all on almost everything that was shot, it was shot on one large uh, stage there at Republic Studios. And so the sand hill was there, the, uh, uh, the, the house was there, the police station was there, everything was there, you know, it, it took five steps and you were into a different set. And so... Um, and and uh, correct me, Republic Studios was in Hollywood, right? Yeah, I guess it's where, I didn't realize it, it's where the, uh, the CBS uh, Channel 9 type facilities are right now. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, actually it's uh, it's Channel 11 Fox Television off of Sunset there. I think that's the area you were talking about. Uh, this was, this obviously wasn't MGM. This was an independent film shot at Republic. This is in, right, right. Right, right. They, they, uh, they did this movie for, with, uh, I think the, it was about $300,000 was the, uh, the budget they had for the movie. And we did it in three and a half, maybe four weeks at tops. Um, the thing was, is that I didn't, at, when I first got there, I didn't realize that this, that the, the whole premise was the fact that it was a dream. At least, you know, that's how, you, how they shot it from. So the doors on the, on the, on the police station were huge. And you know, I couldn't, when I first saw them, I thought, well, why are the doors so big? And everything was very stark and, and the, like even on the, the hill, the trees were painted black and there was no leaves. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, like I said, it, it, the whole thing created that dreamlike uh, aura of, 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 you know, and I think, I think Menzies, of course, I realized later on just how fantastic he was. And uh, and what he was trying to do, and um, I hope that I did a, a decent job of trying to you know get it to come across as a little kid, you know. Well, you were every kid in America. Every kid who saw that movie completely identified with you. I mean, it's funny. Um, this was made in '52, about the same time that Kenneth Arnold, up in the state of Washington, saw the flying discs and coined the term flying saucer. So you're just a year after the flying saucer craze begins. Uh, I mean, the day the earth stood still had come out and so had the thing from another world with Jim Arness. The, I um, That scared me. That movie scared me. That one really did. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, Howard Hawks at his best. Um, the, I think the things that got really freaky for me when I was watching the movie Invaders from Mars were the mutants. The mutants were, I don't know how they were on set. I'm sure they were a lot more charming than they were for me watching it. But did you get a chance to talk to those guys or did they freak you out? Oh, no. What happened is they brought me on set a couple days early so I could get to meet them so that it wouldn't be a scary situation for me. Now, uh, Max Palmer was, there was two really big guys and Max Palmer was one of them. He was, 
I, I always thought he was about eight foot tall, but he, he was he was pretty close to that if he wasn't. And then the other gentleman was Locke Martin from the day the earth stood still. Right. And he and it was kind of funny because Locke, they had to put, he had to wear lifts. First time in his life, I think, that he ever had to wear <laughs> any kind of extension. Because yeah, he was, I think, seven foot seven. Right. In real life. Uh, he had been the doorman of the Grauman's Chinese. They wanted to make them look, you know, the same height. Uh, Max was a little bit bigger, heftier. I think he weighed 470 some pounds. He's just a big guy. And uh, so I got to meet them and they were just good guys. I mean, they're just really good guys. And, and they, you know, put their uniform, their little, their little green uniforms on and their little eyepieces and and uh, ran around the set, <laughs> but it was um, it was a really uh, it was neat how it all came and it was and they put it together so well. I, I mean, I look back now and I see, how, and I've gone to see you know they've re, they've restored the film of course, right, and and I've seen I've seen it now two or three different times. And it is gorgeous. They've done a fantastic job. Yeah, at a, at a time when a lot of the science fiction movies were released in black and white, uh, this was just gloriously colorful. Another well, person I wanted to ask you about, because uh, she also was a little freaky for me, uh, was um, Luce Potter, who played the alien... Uh, I don't know what you call her, the alien queen or whatever in the box. Oh, yeah, yeah. Intelli the man, uh, or the intelligence uh, at its highest level. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing about this was the fact that Luce Potter was um, a little person, as they call them now. In those days, we just called them midgets. But, uh, and, and, and she went to high school with my mother. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so my mother knew her. All of a sudden, she comes on the set and she goes, "That's Luce Potter," and I'm going, "How do you know that lady?" You know, well, that's I went to school with her, and so yeah, that was so that was really interesting. And she, of course, was one uh, of the Munchkins from The Wizard of Oz. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Exactly. So that whole effect of just seeing her face in the sphere. That was oh. a really cool effect. I mean, you got the impression that it was just a head. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Just yes, yes. And the, the, another thing that was so great about the movie, and I know that Spielberg was impressed enough that he used it in Jaws, was when, when uh, a person was coming out you know, to the sand pit and all of a sudden you heard this, the music came on. Right. And that, ooh, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden you knew something was gonna happen. I mean, you knew this was something was bad was gonna happen. And it was the same thing you got in the Jaws when you heard that boom, 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 boom. <laughs> you, knew, you knew that shark was coming, you know? And you know, just run, everybody run. <laughs> but yeah, so they used that oh, so well. Oh, sure, sure. And uh, of course, whenever I, whenever I mention the films to people and they say, I don't think I know that. And then I start going, Colonel Fielding, Colonel Fielding. <laughs> I'm quoting you. <laughs> you know, somebody, one of my friends told me that I said that line 21 times. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't counting. <laughs> Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the cast members because they're so, they're, they're, these are such interesting roles because they start out fairly normal and then most of the turn, characters turn into zombies. Right. Um, what do you remember about Leif Erikson who plays your dad? Leif Erikson and Hilary Books who played my mom. Right. Two of the nicest people you can ever meet. They were just really nice, and and in the in the beginning of the movie, of course, they portray themselves as being just oh the you know the the best parents in the world, and of course, and then they get sucked down and get changed into these monsters, and so um, 
Yeah, he was good. And, and, and there had, there's one sequence and the next time you watch the movie, if you have a chance, uh, in the movie there, there he, he comes back from the field where he went out to, and they suck him down and he comes back and now, you know, he's got the thing in the back of his neck. Right, he's possessed. Right, right he's, yes. And so he's sitting there and he's talking to me and I come up behind him and I see he's got something on the back of his neck and I question him about it. And he tells me, yes, I just, you know, I got caught it on some wire, barbed wire. And then as I move around, he tells me, you know, he, he takes a swing at me. Well, what happened was that I missed my mark. And so I was a little bit closer than I should have been. Lee Erickson is a big man. And when he swung, I was right there. He hit me, knocked me on the floor. And I'm sure that the Menzies went print, print, you know, because that was the greatest reaction. I mean, I went down. I mean, he just knocked me on my, on my keister, man. He just, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The marks are very important, especially. Oh, yeah, when <laughs> yeah. I found uh, that out. Yeah. He must have been so apologetic. You know, yeah, in a way, but we all laughed about it then, you know. There was no, no no harm no foul type thing you know so uh, what are you what are your memories of uh arthur franz who played the, the scientist arthur franz and, and and both he and helena carter were right it were um they were veteran actors and actors you know actors. uh arthur franz had been in a lot of old war movies you know he was in a lot of the he played, you know, part in the submarines and Navy and those kind of things. So I had, I, I don't know, as a kid, you know, you, 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 my parents had to tell me who each of the people were that I was going to be playing, you know, because I didn't know who they were. We didn't, like I said, we didn't go to a lot, a lot of movies at all. And so, you know, they would say, well, this is, a, you know, like I played a movie with Bing Crosby. Well, you know, they can't say Jim Ben Crosby is, you know, this big singer, you know, and did White Christmas and all these things. And, and so, you know, I had to learn that from my parents, but I never had a bad experience at all on any of the movies. And well, it sounded like you were really having a fun and you were being a professional. You weren't, you didn't bring an attitude to the set. It sounds like you were the ideal actor. Well, you know, like I said, I had, there was no, there was nothing driving me to say that I really wanted to be a star, you know? I just, I, it was sort of like, uh, I pictured myself as like a little guy, you know, I took my lunchbox and I went to work. Sure. And so, yeah, I went there and, and the, the director told me, you know, these are the scenes we're going to be, you know, the day before they give you the scenes they're going to be doing. So you go home at night and memorize your lines. And then you come back the next day and, and then they go in and the director kind of tells you how he wants you to play the scene. And, uh, you know, like I said, I had never had any acting lessons before. And, uh, and like I've, I've always said that uh, I'm just, I was a very fortunate child to be able to have this experience because I never looked for it in my life. I mean, we never looked for me to be ever be in the movies. And uh, it was one of those things that uh, it just happened and I was at the right place at the right time. I couldn't sing, I couldn't dance. I mean, and I, like I said, I never had any acting lessons. So it was just, I guess, curly hair and freckles. <laughs> well, you're, you're working on shows all through schools, but you're not working all the time. My question would be, uh, you were enrolled in regular school, obviously, I would think, between gigs, or did you just stop regular school altogether? No, I went to regular school. So you I would went. you would come to class, and then you'd get an assignment, and then have to leave, and they, then you would start to do the schooling in the little red schoolhouses of the town, that kind of thing. Right, exactly, yes. And what, what happened was that uh, I know that my mom had to go, and she became pretty good friends with the the principal of the grammar school that I went to. And so uh, they would give her an outline of what the teacher was gonna be doing that year. 
Right. So then I would take that and she'd give that to the, the teacher on the set. And, uh, and the teacher on the set was not only a teacher, but she was also kind of a welfare worker too, to make sure that, you know, no, they didn't do anything untold, you know, or anything bad for the child. So, yeah, no, it was, I, and I, so my friends, I'd go back to school and, and, uh, uh, and try to fit back in with, with them and you know. was there were there any jealousies and envy uh, amongst your kids or did they all take it out take it pretty well i had one guy <laughs> he was my next door neighbor or my, well, my, well yeah the next door neighbor and uh he i think he really wanted to be in movies too and so what he did is he had his mother uh dye his hair because i had kind of Oh, I was kind of a reddish blonde. Right. And so he had his mother dye his hair and, and put, you know, put a, I guess, I don't want to say that. Uh, put curls in it, you know, had it curled. And, uh, and so that he could look and be like, like me. And I'm sorry, Jerry never made it. <laughs> <laughs> He was a good guy, but yeah, Gerald never made it. Uh, um, but that was the only one. I'm sorry. That was the only one that, that did kind of all the rest of it. We were just we were just regular kids. So William Cameron Menzies, the director of uh, Invaders from Mars. What what are your memories of him? The most organized person that I've ever worked with. I mean. And I got to see them. He did, um, he, he drew these pictures of every scene that he was gonna do. And he had them up on, uh, in this one room, because I remember seeing them hanging in there and I was going, wow, that's unbelievable. Because I'd never seen any other director ever do anything like that. And, uh, and then a, couple, a day before, I guess, before we started shooting, someone stole them wow and so they were all gone and i mean and that's what he he had had everything planned with you know going according to those pictures and so yeah it was um that was a real jolt to him i know but he still he still knew what he wanted to do, and he, he you know, he, and he told me, and, and I tried to do whatever he asked. Do you remember, I mean, you made so many movies, Jimmy. Do you remember the premiere of Invaders from Mars? Was it, there, was it a big deal, or was it not something a big deal? Uh, no, it, it, was, it wasn't a big deal. We went to, a, I can't even remember the... I remember when we, the first movie I ever made, of course, was uh, High Barbary. Right. I mean, I mean that, that it's, it's my first kind of where I was destined to do. And, and that movie, I remember going and watching it at the Wiltern uh, Theater off of, I think, La Cienega. No, no, it's actually on Western, Western Avenue in Wilshire. I know it well because I was... I was a little boy, and in the lobby of the Wiltern Theater were these Asian urns that were taller than I was. So I remember that lobby being the size of a baseball stadium. Of course, it was not the size of a baseball stadium, but when you're a seven-year-old kid, it's oh, yeah. very spacious. That, yeah, one of the great movie palaces in all time. So that's where you saw High Barbary? That's where I saw High Barbary. I can't remember where I saw Invaders from Mars. Well, you and I kind of grew up in the same neighborhood because I, I, well, first of all, I started in Pico Robertson. I used to, I lived, I, for six years, I lived across the street from a movie theater, the Fox West Coast Stadium, which was on Pico just uh, west of Robertson. And then when oh, I was 11, okay. yeah, yeah. And then when, when I was 11, we moved to uh, West LA and that's where we walked across the freeway. And then the Culver was our main theater that we would go to. And there was also a little independent theater nearby called the Meralta. Meralta, the Meralta, yes, oh yeah. Hey, I went and saw movies at the Meralta Theater. Sure, oh. sure, no, no. The, what high school did you go to? I went to Hamilton. Uh, 
Are you a hammy man too? Are you a hammy man? Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. What yep. was the name of your graduating class? <laughs> Are you ready for, for a school, for Hamilton High School, right? We were called the Shaughnessy's. <laughs> <laughs> and they had these little Irish little guys, you know? <laughs> oh, that's very funny. We're both that's Hamiltonians. So well, uh, I was the um, Via Tokias, which was a Swahili term. Uh, I think okay. peace in Swahili. But so you were a Shaughnessy from, let's see. Uh, it was uh, 58. 58. So I was 10 years behind you. I was, I was 69. Okay, so, good. Because, and I don't know if, do they still do, you had senior A and senior B? Well, when I was there in 69, yes, we had A and B. Yeah. I don't know if they still do that. It's a very good question. But Hammy's still there. We lived right on Cataraugus. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, hey, I, I used to race my car up and down Cataraugus. <laughs> well, people, I was, I'm sure that people there can still remember a 50 Olds that shouldn't have been going 100 miles an hour down there. <laughs> well, I, um, I once found out that Cataraugus, and I think growing up, learning how to spell my own street name was a challenge because yeah. it's a lot, of, a lot of letters. Cataraugus was the name of an Indian tribe from New York State. Okay. <laughs> so, so yes, I lived actually a little bit further west. I lived on the corner of Cataraugus and Castle Heights. So right across the street from the elementary school there. And what elementary school did you go to? I went first I went to I went to, you know, um La Bayona and then they built Sharnock Road School, which was right behind Palms Junior High. Well, you, here's another irony. We're, we moved out of our house, I told you before the show, because we're remodeling. I live across the street from Sharnock Road. In fact, if I open my window now, I can spit into the playground. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Anyway, yep. I mean, that's my, that was my, uh, that was my uh, growing up area. I mean, I... Sure. sure. Uh, Here's one more thing I'm going to ask you about. Okay. Apple Pen. Pico I, Boulevard, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hung out there. That was our big hangout in, in, in I guess, our senior year in high school. That was when we started to, to become, uh, I guess, grown-ups maybe a little bit more. And, and, and so yeah, it, it was that we go there. And then when I was in college, we would go to the apple fan and i knew all the guys in there and we hung out around there and and now i think it cost you like a, an arm and a leg to get a hamburger there well it's still a bit of a wait because after all these years they still don't have tables they just have that counter a counter and right it's a oh, throw yeah. i now if you went to charnock does that mean you also went to palms junior high I went to palms junior high and you so went to palms. louis pasteur right oh, i went to palms too oh did you okay yeah. Yeah, I went to Palms too. I was the graduating class of 1966. In fact, uh, I was in Palms when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Wow, okay. We dedicated the quad uh, as the John F. Kennedy quad in our graduating year in 66. Yeah, I, I felt that my, my, my apartment on uh, Cataraugus, I mean, our house on Cataraugus was not only four blocks from Hammy, it was across the street from Castle Heights, which I went uh, one year for for uh, for elementary school, and then it was across the street from the bus stop to Palm. So it was strategically located. That's, well, that's, that's wonderful. So so you graduate from high school. You're now out of the movies. What did you decide to do with your life? I went. Um, I was. I, I was. I was trying to get to UCLA, okay, because I wanted to do engineering, uh, and um, somehow it didn't get accepted. So I ended up going to Santa Monica City College. I did too. <laughs> oh, this uh, is very funny, Jimmy. I mean, we're like kindred spirits here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was. I went there for two years. Um, and then um, 
decided that uh, it was time that I went into the service. Oh. And so myself and uh, he is now my brother-in-law, but he was a good friend at the time. Uh, we went down and uh, we took, you know, some tests and stuff and we scored really well and next thing i know uh, here it is it's december 1st 1959 and uh, i end up at fort ord california <laughs> in the army <laughs> wow and from, and from there uh what i did is i went into what they call the army security agency and it was um we intercepted and broke code. Oh, interesting. So, so I was sent to Germany and I was there for about three years. And uh, yeah, we went through the Berlin Wall. We went through the Cuba crisis. Uh, you also uh, went through the uh, induction of Elvis Presley. Actually, he was in before. Was he? he yeah, he was in, he was in before. Yeah, and he, and he did a good job of being a, a regular guy. And so, you know, they didn't hate people that were, most of the guys, you know, some of the guys remembered me from some of the movies I was in. And so you know, that, that, you know, became a kind of a fun thing, but yeah, no. So I, and then I met my wife there. Right. And uh, we, uh, we, I, I came, I, I got released out of the army, came home and sent for her and she came to the United States and we got married here. Was uh, she a German national? Yes, yes. She could, she could speak very little English when she got here. And uh, so she learned English along with our two sons. <laughs> so, yeah. And did you pursue an engineering uh, uh, discipline or did you get into well, something I, else? I did kind of, yes, I did for a while. I started out, my first job was as, was as a draftsman a draftsman. And then from there, I was going to move into, into some uh, manufacturing stuff. And somebody said, you know, you could really do a good job in sales. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know why I did that, but I did pursue that. And I spent uh, 40 odd years in sales. And well, because, it, but it, of your, because of your personality and the, your comfort around people, you yeah. probably made a natural salesman, and it worked out great. I got to cut. Uh, I covered all of the aerospace firms in, in Southern California, so my customers were people like Lockheed and TRW and Rock uh, Rockwell and and Hughes and you just name them, and that's what all my customers. So it was a, it was a good living. I mean, I sold a lot of stuff. <laughs> now Toby Hooper calls you up and asks you to be in the remake of Invaders from Mars. That must have been fun for you. And it was kind of funny because I was calling on a young engineer at Lockheed who was into big time into music and movies and stuff uh, uh, as a sideline in his life. And he said, you know, they're making, they're making a remake of your, of your movie. And he said, you should be in it. And so I said, oh yeah, 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 you know. And so he started calling them. And pretty soon, Toby Hooper said, okay, send him, bring him down to the set. So I came down, talked to him for a little bit. And he said, you know, I'd like to have you uh, do a cameo role. Would you play the chief of police? And uh, I said, sure, why not? <laughs> And so I did, I did do that. And it was disappointing that the movie didn't turn out as well as I thought it should have. It was, it was a, a kind of a mess, but uh, you know, it's, I'll tell you a funny story. And it certainly wasn't due to your performance, but I, <laughs> I, I go to the Crest Theater on Westwood Boulevard and I'm, I'm standing in line to see the remake. And yeah. a friend comes out from the previous show and says, don't bother to go in. It's just awful. And I said, no, 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 no. This is Invaders from Oz. I got to see this. I got to see this. So I walked in. I saw the movie. 
And then I saw a friend afterwards and I said, maybe you shouldn't go in. <laughs> but, you know, listen, you know, the, I, I lie to can I'm also a filmmaker. I'm out there trying to sell movies every day as a writer and a producer. And I've done some films and I light a candle to anybody who can get a movie made and financed. And I give all the credit to Toby. He got that movie made. You know, people don't realize how many ducks have to line up to get a movie made these days. And uh, I think that the spirit was there. And Toby certainly was inspired by the original. And, you know, th there were some fun things. Um, I think, uh, isn't, isn't uh, Louise Fletcher in the remake? Isn't she swallow yes. a frog at one point? Yes, she swallows that, a frog, yep. That was one of the more memorable moments, but it didn't hold a prayer to the original. The original is, is, is a classic of classics. And um, do you go to the movies much anymore? Uh, you know, we were going there for a while. Um, and then of course, COVID hit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we can go, you know, I, I'll go, you know, when my, my kids tell me, you know, Hey, there's a good movie playing. You got to go see this. So we'll go, but, uh, no, not as much as, uh, we probably should. Well, I don't think I, frankly, I don't think there's much to see these days. Uh, I think that, uh, and I get, I get a little, uh, I get a little pushback because, uh, you know, the young people love the superhero movies. You know, they'll go see Iron oh. Man 5 and Superman 3 and Batman 12. And, you know, again, I give the filmmakers credit because they put on these epic films. But I think the variety of movies that we enjoyed as kids, just like, for instance, the romantic comedies you were in back in the 50s and the late 40s, where are all the romantic comedies today? Where are the family comedies we grew up with? I mean, there's a lot of science fiction, which is great, but um, what about comedy and Westerns? God, we, we saw those Westerns. You worked with Joel McRae. I think the variety is missing, and I think that's something I'm hoping Hollywood catches up on. I, I do too, I really do, because, um, you know, there, the, Nowadays, and I'm not taking anything away from, you know, the actors, because they're doing exactly what they're told to do and, and what the scripts call out for. But uh, the biggest problem is that it's sort of like, in the old days, you had dialogue. New days, you have somebody says two or three lines, and then there's an explosion. So true. so true. I mean, how often do we quote classic lines anymore? You uh, you know, even in the James Bond movies, the first four or five James Bond movies, you can quote some very glib and clever lines. And if you ask me to quote uh, the last Bond movie with Daniel Craig, No Time to Die, I couldn't I couldn't quote a line to save my life. It's true. It's true. The writers are no longer the most important. It's the it's the special effects and the action have taken over. Right. Yeah. And it's and and you know it, it's a shame because and I I didn't realize just how great some of those actors and actresses really were. You know, I mean they were and and I see the amount of dialogue that they that they do. You know, it's 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 just outstanding at what they do. I mean, well, one of your one of your first films that you appeared in uh, is quite a great little thriller called "Sorry Wrong Number" with Barbara Stanwyck. Do you do you have fond memories of that? You know, I don't have a lot of memories of it because you know I, I just my I didn't have a huge part in it, uh, and I think Leif Erikson was my dad in that movie too. Yeah, you let's see. I'm going to look it up here. You play a character named Peter Lord. Peter Lord, yeah. Peter Lord and um, let's see, Leif, Leif Erickson plays Fred Lord. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And your and your mom is Ann Richards. Yeah. And and you you're I mean one of the actors in the movie is Barbara Stanwyck's co-star Burt Lancaster, who's all one of my all-time favorite actors. Did you get a chance to work with him at all? No, I didn't. But I did get you know I've got a, I've got a beautiful autographed picture of him and also one from Barbara Stanwyck too. Oh, very nice. Very nice. 
and some of the other ones that I got are, you know, Red Skelton and and in those, you know, it was so it was, yeah, I, I, it was it was a for me it was a great experience that I you know, I do there's not enough money that you could ever buy buy that experience. Sure, sure. In in the westerns you did like like the western you did with uh, Joel Lonehan. Did you get a chance to ride horses on any of your pictures? Oh yeah, I I got to ride horses in in uh, in Lone Hand. Um, I got to I they I went out to the old um, the old back lot at Universal and uh, they and I, there's an interesting story that goes along with this. Uh, they uh, they had this horse that they got that this little girl it was her horse. And they said, well, if she could ride this, you know, anybody could ride it. But that was the only person that that horse ever had on his back. And so when I got out there, you know, the Wranglers brought the horse out and, you know, and they said, okay, Jimmy, here you go. You're going to, you take the horse out for a little bit of a spin out there and bring him back, you know. So I get on the horse and we're going along pretty good. And next thing I know is that horse takes off. And here oh, I am. I'm, I'm trying to hang on, <laughs> and eventually he dumps me off into a into a mountainside. <laughs> so he he goes he goes back to the stables, and here and now the, the wranglers, you know, where's the kid, you know? <laughs> so they come out looking for me, and here I am walking back, right, going. I don't think I want to ride that horse again. On the way back, to, uh, we we did a, uh, most of that movie up in Colorado. So on the way back there, the horse gets in a fight with another horse and gets gets injured. So they had to give me another horse. Oh. And I was the happiest kid in the world <laughs> that I got another horse. And and yeah, it was fun to do because as a kid, you know, I mean, westerns was what we all grew up with. And uh, and so in the mornings the wranglers would bring all of the They'd bring the horses down, you know, from that night stapling them, and they'd bring them out and get them ready for the that morning shoot. And they were all out there, you know, and they had their chaw and they were chewing on tobacco and spitting it. And I just thought that was so cool as a as a twelve year old. You know, you're going, wow. those those are real cowboys, you know. So Joe McRae, in his wisdom and being just a good guy, he goes and he gets. I don't know. I've never seen it that way before. But he got this big jaw of of licorice, and so he gives it to me. And so I would rip a piece off of that, and, and you chew it. And when you spit that out, it looks just as bad as tobacco juice coming. <laughs> and so now I was one of the guys. You know, oh, there was, there was, I mean, I was one of the men. You know, it was so much fun. Yeah, the was, only horse, the only horse riding I was doing is when my parents took me over to La Cienega and Beverly to Beverly Park, and I rode the pony there. Right. <laughs> and every, you know, I got, kid, every kid in West LA rode those ponies. Yeah, I got to, um, I got to learn to drive a team of horses. Ah. And that was a fun thing to do too. And so yeah, there was, and you know, and and in a couple of the scenes there. Uh, there's a scene where I get lassoed off the horse. Right. And um, of course, they have a stunt guy to do that. Uh, they had this little jockey, Johnny, I don't remember his last name, but uh, Johnny was the guy and he gets lassoed off the horse. But I'm, uh, you know, I get, get to ride that horse at a pretty good lick, you know, and it was, it was, a lot, it was fun and trying to keep up with the camera truck. Let me ask you one more question because I've always missed the fact that I was never able to get out to lot three at MGM, uh, which is the lot on Jefferson that became all those condominiums, the rain tree condominiums. Do you have any memories since you worked at MGM? Do you have any memories of working out there on lot three where they had uh, all those, those outdoor sets? Does that ring a bell at all? Um it does only because of the fact that um, I, my, our first home that we bought when we got married, my first home was over off of uh, Higuera and Lucerne. And, oh, part sure. of, and part of that, right, right across the street, 
there was a home across the street from us and their backyard was up against the back lot of MGM. So and, are you telling, like I used to drive by there with my parents because we had cousins in the Blair Hills, which is on this side of La Cienega. I remember driving by that back lot as an older uh, child and there were all these false fronts were all burned out. It was like, like we're literally acres of burnt out buildings. Does that ring a bell at all? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, cause you know, like I said, that's my first five years of my marriage. I was right there, you know, right across the street from it. I mean, I could see when they were filming Hogan's Heroes. Sure. The, the, the guard tower where the light was, I mean, it was, I could see that from my, my living room window. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought those burned out buildings had something to do with Gone with the Wind. To this day, I would think that it possibly could have, because obviously they had to burn Atlanta. Yeah, but I think it wasn't because it was made from 20th century, so I don't know if, wasn't that? No, no, Gone with the Wind was MGM. Was it? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the MGM 39. Um, okay. Well, well, Jimmy, this has been so wonderful. You're such a beautiful window into important time in Hollywood. And and I, I know the listeners are going to just love hearing your stories of that period and what you told us about Invaders from Mars. I mean, just like um, just like uh, Bogey tells uh, Claude Rain, or uh, tells Ingrid Bergman in in uh, Casablanca, I think she, he says, we'll all have, always have Paris. I think we'll always have invaders from Mars because it's, it's with <laughs> us like, uh, like a Shakespeare. And we really appreciate you coming on the show today. You know, that's true. You know, like I said, I, there was a whole bunch of other movies I made that I thought were, were maybe better than invaders from Mars. But invaders from Mars will always be the one movie that everybody remembers me. And now, since we've, we're going to re-release it, you know, my, my, I guess my, my son and my granddaughter, uh, Haley, who is really working hard to get into the movie business, she, uh, they, you know, they said, hey, Grandpa, the legacy lives on. And so, you know, the Invaders from Mars is what brought it all around. And, sure. uh, and then people like yourself and... Robert Skotak, who has been just a great guy. And he, we, at one time, we said, they interviewed me, he and Scott Holden interviewed me and said, uh, uh, wouldn't it be funny if they remade the movie? And we joked about it and laughed. And lo and behold, they did do it. Unfortunately, it didn't work out as well as we all had hoped. But, you know, I, it's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. And, 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 and I tell you what this is, is so neat is the fact that we share a whole bunch of real life experiences with the schools we went to and where we lived. Isn't that funny? It's such a, it's a very small world. I mean, I wouldn't change. I, I live in Simi Valley now, right? Not too far from uh, the Reagan Library. And, uh, and it's a great place for my kids to grow up. But when I was growing up, West LA, there couldn't have been a better place to live. It was very special. You could ride your bike anywhere. And in fact, I have fond memories. <laughs> I had a little Stingray, which was yep. that high bar uh, short oh, yeah. bike with a saddle seat. And I, I remember parking it behind the culver and not locking it. It was that kind of time. Nobody worried about things getting yeah, stolen. Right. Of course, my bike was stolen. So, <laughs> but I have fond memories. I've told the story a few times. I was riding to Pixie Raceways. Pixie Raceways on Sepulveda was a slot car track where you brought your little oh. race car to race right. it. I was at the corner of Motor and Tabor. And practically, no, no, Motor and Tabor. <laughs> yeah. And I okay. hear a voice. Can you tell me where MGM Studios is? And I looked behind me, and it was Steve McQueen in a Ferrari asking me directions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you see, the world is so small. 
It really is. Absolutely. Well, everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. We've been having a, a really a wonderful conversation with Jimmy Hunt. All the best to you, Jimmy. Everything you do, uh, we wish you all, all the success you have into your beautiful family. Thank you for being on the show. Stephen, I have to leave you with one thing. My wife and I are going to celebrate our 60th wedding anniversary in January. Oh, congratulations. And, That's and, wonderful. And she has been the best thing that I ever did in my whole life was to marry her. But I'm going to leave you with this. Gee whiz. <laughs> That's a line that you can quote forever. Colonel Fielding, Colonel Fielding. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. Be well. You too. Thank you so much. Oh, by the way, um, okay, well, we'll wait till um, Ben will turn us off.